theyeshiva.net. Welcome everybody and good evening. I want to thank again our dear friend Reb Mendel Zilberberg Schlitter for uh, being the Ruach HaChayim behind all of these shirim. So there's enough chairs you have where to sit. And again, uh, I'll say a Kaddish at the end of the shir in tribute to his mother of blessed memory. Next week, Thursday, of course, is Purim. So there will not be a uh, shir here. But for those of you who will not be able to deal with the missing week, so we're going to have a big Purim Tish, a Purim Fabrengen, in the Vilchovitz Hall, Vizhnitz, on 230 Maple Avenue. Also a special section with a Mechitza for women. That's 8.30 p.m. after the Suda on Purim. Everybody is invited. It'll be a big Fabrengen, a Kumzitz with food. And Ketayv Leva Melech Bayayin. And the Mezamrim, and uh, Ben Shimon on the music, and the Mezamrim on the music. And uh, men are invited, and women are invited, and of course, children are invited. That's in Vilchovitz, 2.30 Maple, next Thursday, Mitzai Purim, 8.30 p.m. and on. The week afterwards, the Thursday afterwards, we will resume the series on Emuna, regular time, right here, regular place. So next week is Purim, and then we're on with this shear, the Thursday afterwards, Blinader. Tonight, I'm going to explore one of the most important themes of Judaism and of Jewish identity, and we're going to deal with the question of what does it mean to be a Jew? And particularly from one angle. And that is the unique and incom- almost incomprehensible phenomenon of the feelings and the passions that the Jewish people have triggered in the hearts of humanity for the last almost 4,000 years. It can be summed up in three words, why the Jews? And the way I want to address this tonight is by first learning with you a piece of Gemara. I translate everything into English because some people don't understand Yiddish or Hebrew. Okay, please take a look at the first source. This is very apropos to this week, which is why I chose this topic. Gemara Megillah, Daf Yud Gimel Amid Beis, and Yudalad Amid Aleph. Track Talmud, Tractate Megillah, 13b, 14a. Says the Gemara, Vayoymer HaMelech, Lahamon, HaKesef, Nasun Lach, Vaham, Lasses, Baikatayv, Beinecha. Everybody remembers the story, the Prime Minister of the Persian Empire, at the time is a man named Haman. Haman is an arch enemy of the Jewish people, a raging anti-Semite, who is determined not only to murder Mordechai, but to murder every single last Jew. 
he comes to the king, to the monarch of the Persian Empire, which was the most powerful empire of the time, and he offers an exuberant large sum of money for the rights to kill the Jews. And the Megillah says that the king tells Haman, the money you can keep for yourself, you can do with the people as you wish. And indeed, the edict is issued forth that one day, one year later, the 13th day of Adr should be designated for genocide. Every single member of the Persian Empire has the full right and stamp of the king to murder every single Jew. In one day, complete Jewish extermination. This is the story in the book of Esther in the Megillah. Comes the Gemara, Amr Rebab Rebab said, Marshal da Hashverish Vahaman Lama Dovadoima. To understand the phenomenon of Ahashverish, the king, and Haman, the prime minister, let's give a parable, an illustration to be able to appreciate the story of Ahashverish and Haman. What's the parable? Lishnei Bnei Adam, there were two people. One man had a mound in his field. The other one had a ditch in his field. A tail is a bergala, a mound. A chritz is a loch, a pit, a ditch. They were both dealing with two issues. One had a mound and one had a ditch. Bal chritz amar... The man who has the ditch in his field says, As he walks by one day the other person's field and he sees a mound, he says, Ah, if I can only purchase this mound with money so I could finally fill the ditch. This ditch was annoying to no end. Every time he was walking through his field, he almost fell into the ditch or he fell into the ditch. It certainly wasn't aesthetic aesthetically pleasing to the eye, he wants to buy the mound of his friend, of the other owner, to be able to fill the ditch with the extra sand. Balatel Omar, the owner of the mound, who wants to get rid of the mound, because every time he walks in his field, he keeps on bumping in to this mound. So when he walks by the other field and he sees a hole, he says, Ah, meyitim lichrit zebedomim. If I can only purchase this ditch for money, and then I can take the mound of sand and fill the ditch and get rid of the mountain. One day, the two people who were dreaming of purchasing what the other one had, they met. So the owner of the ditch tells the owner of the mound, Sell me your mound. The man of the mound says, Take it for free. If only you would take it. Not only don't you have to pay me, you're doing me a favor. That's the end of the parable that Rabbi Abba gives in Meseches Megillah, page 13, 14, Yud Gimel Yudalat. The Nimshul, what he's trying to illustrate is, is clear. Haman is the owner of the ditch. He has a ditch and he can't stand the ditch. He wants to fill it up. Achashverish owns a mound, and he can't stand the mound, he wants to get rid of it. Haman comes to Achashverish, the Bala Charitz, 
comes to the Balatel, that's how Rebaba puts it, and says, sell me your mound, I'll give you money, and give me the mound. Achashverish says, money? <laughs> I have been waiting for this day when somebody will finally take away this mound. I wanted to buy the ditch. I was ready to pay money for somebody to get rid of this mound. Now you want this mound and you want to pay me? No need. You take the mound, take the sand, fill your ditch. Halavai. That's why Achashverish tells Haman, don't give me any money, keep your money, and do with the people as you wish. The illustration seems very clear, but there's a question. The question here, anyone who has even a basic understanding of the way our sages and our rabbis conveyed their thoughts and ideas, know that whenever they give a marshal, whenever they give a parable, a story, an anecdote, an illustration, a metaphor, it's always for one purpose, to clarify a point that is difficult to comprehend. They want to bring it down to the learner, to the reader, that he or she should be able to understand it. They want to elucidate it, elucidate the idea, crystallize it, remove questions. What are we gaining exactly from this parable that we don't understand from the story itself? The Megillah tells you that Haman hated the Jews, he came to Achashverish and said, I'll pay you to get rid of them. And Achashverish says... I'm happy to get rid of them without it. Comes a Baba and says, let me explain to you. What's the What's the brilliant contribution of the marshal? That was a man with a ditch and a man with a mound. They both wanted to get rid of it. They thought they have to buy it. They have to pay money. And they find out there's somebody else who's waiting for the mound. And there's somebody else who's waiting for the ditch. This one needs a mound to fill his ditch. And this one needs a ditch to get rid of his mound. And it works out. Everybody is happy. What exactly do I learn from this? What do I learn about Haman? I say, ah, now I understand Haman. Now I understand Achashverish. This is the story in the Megillah. What is the marshal here? What's the question and what's the answer? Even if it's not understood, why Haman and Achashverish hated the Jews so much? How does this metaphor explain it and answer the question? But if we go one step deeper, not only does the marshal, the parable, not seem to explain anything substantial or significant, just a cute anecdotal story, really when you think about it, it actually doesn't belong here. Why? Achashverish wanted to get rid of the mound. Haman, what did Haman want to do with the ditch? He wanted to fill the ditch. If the mound is a metaphor for the Jewish people, Achashverish wants to get rid of the mound. How does he get rid of the mound? By giving it to Haman, who puts it into his field. Haman doesn't want to annihilate the mound. (laughs) Haman wants to acquire the mound and place it in his field and keep it there in order to fill the ditch. In the story, Haman and Achashverosh both want to get rid of the Jewish people, out of the field, out of the garden, out of the world, out of the planet. If you were a Baba, if I was a Baba, I would have given a different metaphor. (laughs) I would say there were two neighbors... They had a mound right in between them. It was bothering both of them terribly. One man thinks the other guy loves this mound and he says, I'll pay you $10,000. Just get rid of this stupid mound, Samachmim Meshigah. 
And the other guy says, if only, I'm happy to get rid of the mound, you don't have to pay me. And they both get rid of the mound. That's actually the story. Haman wants to kill the Jews, Achshreder wants to kill the Jews. In this marshal, no, Haman wants to take the Jews. He wants to fill his field with the mound. Number three, why did the Ba'aba decide that Haman owns the ditch <laughs> and Achashvedish owns the mound? Why did the Ba'aba decide that? That is also precise and meticulous. Rebabe decided Haman is the Balachrit, Achashvedish is the Balatel. Efshifakert. Maybe it's the opposite. Many commentators have explored this story in the Gemara. The Marsha, the Chsam Soifer, the Ben Ishchai and the Sefer Ben Ben Yehoyada, Vilnagon, other commentators, other Mefarsh. Tonight, I'm going to share with you a perspective that was shared, the nucleus, the core of this idea was shared by the Lubavitcher Rebbe at a Purim Fabrengen, Tovshin Chafei, 1965, Purim Chafei. This metaphor of Rebbe is not a simple illustration. It's coming to address this major question. A question that has been plaguing the Jewish people, not for 10 years, not for 100 years, but for thousands of years. And the question is, where did we go wrong? What did we do wrong? Why the Jews? Death for the Jews has been desired and plotted by tyrants of every single age. From Paroi to Sancheiriv, to Nebuchadnezzar, to Haman, to Antiochus, to the Roman Caesars and the Roman emperors, the Turks and the Christians and the Muslims, Stalin, Hitler, on almost every great power that ever lived and flourished, to find the Jew as a target for either abuse or complete annihilation. I don't know if you know that Jews have been expelled from nearly every country they ever lived in throughout their history. You go to every country where a community of Jews lived and built the community, and almost every single one of them, to the exclusion of a few that you can count on a hand, we've been expelled from there. England and France and Hungary and Austria and Germany, Lithuania and Spain and Portugal, Bohemia, Moravia, Russian, Russia, of course, Poland, Lithuania, most of Eastern Europe, the entire Middle East, all the countries in North Africa, and of course from our homeland, more than once from Eretz Yisrael, from the Holy Land. Throughout the centuries, millions of Jews were murdered, including millions of infants and children. The Babylonians and the Romans killed probably close to three million Jews. The Christians and the Muslims in their crusades, inquisitions, auto de fe's, pogroms, blood libels, and general religious fervor killed over 15 centuries. Millions of Jews often wiping out entire communities. Bogdan Chmolenetsky and his bandits, the Cossacks in 1648-1649, beheaded close to 300,000 Jews, while Hitler put to death a third of our people in Eastern Europe. 
Six million of our Jews were decimated, including one and a half million children. In nearly every country, Jews have at some time been subjected to beatings, torture, persecution, murder, solely because they were Jewish. And the question is why? What caused this? What did we do or not do to trigger such powerful passion and animosity when throughout our history we always constituted a small, small minority of civilization? Today, like most of our history, Jews don't constitute even a quarter of 1% of humanity. You wouldn't think so from the noise that we make and the attention that we get in the news. There's 14 million Jews, 2.5 billion Catholics, 1.5 billion Muslims, 1.2 billion Chinese, another million as I'm talking. (laughs) We constitute, our numbers constitute a smaller amount than a statistical error in a Chinese census. Forget 1%, forget a half, forget, we're not even a quarter of 1% of humanity. And yet, the venom that Jews have triggered throughout the centuries and the millennia seems completely, not seems, completely disproportionate to our numbers. What, what caused this? Why did every great empire that ruled much of the world see the Jews as such an important and central target. From the pharaohs in Egypt, to the great Egyptian empires, Assyrian empire, Babylonian empire, Persian empire, Greek empire, Roman empire, Byzantine empire, and so throughout the Middle Ages and the contemporary ages, whether it was in the Soviet Union or in Germany, etc. Or today in the Muslim world. And though many Jews thought that the evil of anti-Semitism perished, In the post-Auschwitz world, after the world saw what happened in the crematoriums of Adolf Hitler, we thought this would be the death sentence of anti-Semitism as well. We have been rudely awakened during the last few decades as anti-Semitism has once again reared its ugly, grotesque head, not only in Muslim countries all over the world, but in much much of Europe in many universities, in the mouth of academics and professors and journalists and politicians and essayists and European intellectuals and professors in Europe and even in America and other places, never mind in the Muslim world, the vile hatred of the Jewish people has apparently not died. As somebody once said, anti-Semitism has been the most successful philosophy that pervaded the 20th century, because Soviet communism came and went, German fascism came and went, anti-Semitism came and stayed. The successful ideology of it is, is very powerful. Some of you are familiar with the fact that two weeks ago, the Polish right-wing government... This passed a law criminalizing anybody who would declare that Poland was an accomplice of the Nazis 
and Poles take responsibility in the atrocities of the Second World War. The problem, of course, is, with all due respect to the Polish government and the Polish Prime Minister, the blood of Polish jury, no law can silence. And uh, I mentioned anti-Semitism over thousands of years. When we hear big numbers, we don't always get it. So I just, since this law was passed, and my blood was boiling a little bit, so I looked up an article. I want to read with you a few paragraphs. A man named George Will describes one event in Poland by Poles, not by Germans. On June 22, 1941, Germany attacked the Soviet Union. Even though there was the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact between the Soviet Union and Germany for peace, but Hitler deceived Stalin, and in 1941, he suddenly attacked the Soviet Union. This was June 22nd, 1941. The Soviet Union then occupied part of Poland, including the city, it's pronounced in, in English, Jedwabna, I believe in Polish it's Wedwabna, uh, on June 23rd, a day after the attack, a small detachment of Germans entered the town of Wedwabna. There were almost immediately isolated atrocities by Poles against Jews. One Jew was stoned to death with bricks, another knifed and his eyes and tongue cut out. German policy encouraged pogroms by local populations, and there were some horrific ones near Wedwabna. One of the first questions asked of the Germans occupying the town by the Poles was, is it permitted to kill the Jews? Peasants from nearby villages got word of the planned pogrom, and they came to town as they were going to a fear, to a parade. A Pole recalls, the Jewish population became a toy in the hands of the Poles. In Wedwabna, hooks and wooden clubs were used. A head was hacked off and kicked around. To escape the killers, women fled to a pond and drowned their babies, then themselves. But most of the Jews in the town were burnt alive in a barn while the town was searching for the surviving sick and children. One witness recalled, as for little children, the Poles roped a few together by their legs, carried them on their backs, put them on pitchforks and threw them onto smoldering coals. This is not one story that happened over 4,000 years. This story, which uh, is one isolated story, is a story that continued for millennia in almost every, re- almost, not every, almost every region and country in the world. If anti-Semitism was a biological disease like cancer or AIDS, the research that would go into it would be incredible because a disease that goes on for thousands of years in every country and you can't get rid of it. And nothing that the Jews tried to do ever rooted it out successfully. Jews are smart. They tried almost everything. And the very question is, why did almost every great and small culture and civilization see us as their ultimate enemy?
Have we really threatened the well-being of every government and empire for 4,000 years? I mean, we know Jews. Some of us know Jews pretty well. Jews are not perfect, but why was everybody so obsessed with the Jews? If you read about this, a lot of books, a lot of seminars, a lot of articles, a lot of websites, a lot of lot has been written by historians of Jews and non-Jews, by scholars. One of the great questions of history. What did the Jews do to deserve this? Most of them chose to see the ongoing obsession with the Jews as nothing that is uniquely connected to Jews or Judaism. It's rather a multitude of isolated events that erupt here and then erupt there. It happens to be that Jews are always involved. But for every atrocity, they'll always find another excuse. Hitler and the Germans hated the Jews because they blamed us for the defeat of Germany in World War I and for the economic depression that followed. Stalin hated the Jews because he felt that we were capitalists undermining socialism and communism. Christians hated the Jews. They believed we killed their Messiah. Muslims hated the Jews. They said we rejected their prophet who succeeded Moses, the last ultimate prophet, Muhammad. Middle Ages European hated the Jews because they were money lenders or other economic successes. Arab hate the Jews now because of Israel. Because of the territories, the 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 settlements. What happened before 1967? There were no settlements. 1948, because they made a state. So why did they slaughter Jews in heaven in 1929? Why were the pogroms in the 20s and 30s? There's another reason for that. What happened a hundred years before? We always find an isolated reason. Here the Jews are doing this, here the Jews are doing this. Whether it's real or perceived, it's a bunch of isolated events. And the Jews somehow have mazel to be involved in every problem. For 4,000 years, but it's essentially isolated events. Some people say Jews were hated because they called themselves the chosen people. People don't like chosen people. You're chosen, we'll kill you. There's a big problem with this theory. Because in many places, Jews made sure not to call themselves the chosen people and to make sure that they're not the chosen people. They assimilated to the point that they completely did not see themselves as chosen people anymore. And there the hatred was sometimes the worst. Besides, a lot of people believe they're the chosen people. The Japanese and the Chinese and most many nations and cultures believe they're the chosen people. This approach, even though it's very popular, is unconvincing because to deny that there's a single ultimate cause for anti-Semitism is basically something that contradicts both common sense and history. When you look at something that existed for thousands of years straight in so many different countries, different religions, different cultures, different civilizations, in different times and different ages and different milieus. Is it commonsensical to say each time it was something separate or that there's an underlying thread that links all of these events? It existed for too long 
and in too many disparate cultures to embrace logically a claim that each culture hated the Jews because of another reason disconnected from them being Jewish. It doesn't have to do with them being Jewish. It has to do with something that happened to be in their life. They're rich or they're poor, they're capitalists or they're communists, they're religious or they're secular, they're smart or they're dumb. Of course, many factors may exasperate anti-Semitism. It may cause anti-Semitism to erupt at a given time. But these factors don't explain the origin and the genesis of the hatred. And it's also the scope of the hatred. The depth of the hatred was so profound. Economic depression doesn't account for gas chambers. Economic depression is serious, but it doesn't account for crematoriums. For reducing one and a half million children, infants, including infants to ashes. Sometimes I read about anti-Semitism. People come up with all types of things that Jews do. It's almost ludicrous. Of course Jews have flaws. Of course Jews have problems, which people don't. Of course Jews have vices. Nobody's perfect, which people don't. Do Jews have more vices than other people? All people have vices. Jews have their own types of vices. Could we get a little pushy? Yeah. Are some Jews obnoxious? Yeah. Are some Italians pushy and obnoxious? Are some Puerto Ricans pushy and obnoxious? Are some Russians and Ukrainians pushy and obnoxious? My friend Rabbi Malach from Borough Park tells me he's on an airplane. So you know how it is when you travel on an El Al airplane with Jews. You ever had that fortune? It's an interesting phenomenon, right? There's a lot going on there among Jews. You remember there was an airline called Tower Air, Allah Shalom. So they once landed in Israel, Hanukkah time. So the captain gets up and he says, welcome to Tel Aviv, to all those who are sitting, happy new year, to all those who are standing, happy Hanukkah. Uh, Jews are restless, especially on airplanes. So he tells me this fellow was being woken up every five minutes for another thing that they needed on the airplane. Because, you know, there was Gansan about the Midrashim and Yeshivas and Shuls and Minyanim and Koilalim and hospitals and dinners and banquets. You know how it is on, on El Al airplanes, similar thing. And he wanted to sleep. He didn't sleep. He was planning to sleep for 11 hours on the airplane. So he puts up a big sign near his seat. And on the sign he says as follows. I already David Mincha. I'm not available for Mincha. I already David Mairiv. I'm not available for Mairiv. I'm not interested in davening Shachris. I'm going to daven Shachris when I land. I don't have a Tehillim. I don't have a Siddha, I don't have a Chumash, I don't have Daf Yoimi, I don't have a Chakli Yisrael. I don't have an art scroll Gemara, I don't have Mishnah Yoimis, I don't have Halachi Yoimis, I don't have a Mishnah Brura. I don't have a bottle, I don't have a pacifier. I don't have diapers, I don't have baby wipes. I don't have pampers. I don't know the Zgulis of Ribshayla Karastir and the Baba Sali if a plane is about to crash. I do not know which Kapitlach to say. I have absolutely no awareness in any of this. I also have no food. I have no sponge cake. I have no sushi. I have no hard-boiled eggs. I have no baby food. And I don't have any Tylenol or ibuprofen. I have nothing of this. I'm a chaya. He says, I'm a pill. And he goes to sleep. 
Five minutes later, somebody is poking him in his ribs. You know, right in the right place. Poking him. So he wakes up, he takes a look. Read the sign, read the sign. It says, I read the sign already. What is it? Mincha? No, no, no. Read the sign. I read the sign. He says, read it again. He says, I read it again. He says, what do you want? Tzedakah for the vision of Tzacheder. Okay. So, <laughs> so we know, I mean, every people, every culture has its vices, its flaws, its challenges. No question. Jews are blessed with interesting personalities. And some of them can, you know, can get on people's nerves. But friends, this doesn't account for gas chambers. This doesn't account for throwing infants into smoldering coals. This doesn't account for such venomous hatred and animosity. Not in one country. In dozens and dozens and dozens of countries. Not in one decade. Over thousands of years. In this class, we're going to explore the mechanism, the roots, and the lessons. The mechanism. How does it work? When you realize how it works, it becomes even more inexplicable and mysterious. How do we define not why, but what? What is anti-Semitism? What is it exactly? If you look at it, Jews were hated because they were rich. They're rich, successful, they're eating, they're feeding off our blood and our sweat. But they were also hated because they were poor. (laughs) They can't make a living, they're lazy, they don't work, they're unsuccessful, they're parasites. Jews were hated by Karl Marx because they were capitalists. They believe in ownership. Jews were hated by Hitler because they were communists. The opposite of, of capitalists. Jews were hated because they kept to themselves. Isolated, segregated. And then Jews were hated because they infiltrated everywhere. Jews were hated because they were so religious and strange. And Jews were hated because they so successfully assimilated and wanted to take over the regime from within. Protocols of the elders of Zion. Jews were hated because they held tenaciously to a superstitious faith. Voltaire was the greatest proponent of this lie. And of course, Jews were hated because they were ruthless cosmopolitans who believed in nothing. Joseph Stalin. Jews were hated because they were old-fashioned and they were hated because they were modern and progressive. They were hated because they were different and they were hated because they tried to be the same and take over the world. You can't win. The Medrash says that one of the Roman emperors was walking with his entourage and a Jew was walking by and he saw the Roman emperor and he greeted him. The Roman emperor looks at his bodyguard and he says, the audacity of a Jew to have the chutzpah to greet the Roman Caesar as though he was a friend. His head should be off. So they killed him. There was a Jew behind him. So he walks by the Roman emperor. He's quiet. The Roman emperor says, A chutzpah of a Jew sees the king and he doesn't say anything. Off with his head. In other words, the Medrash is trying to say this is not rational. 
Anti-Semitism is not an ideology. It's not a coherent set of beliefs that Jews are this and this and this and this and therefore we hate them. In fact, if you study anti-Semitism from the beginning till today, it's an endless stream of contradictions. So how does it work? How is it so successful? The best way of understanding anti-Semitism is like a virus. Anti-Semitism works like a virus. Viruses attack the human body. But the body has a very sophisticated defense mechanism, which we call the human immune system. So when the virus attacks, the body gets to work, it produces antibodies, and as a result of that, in a very sophisticated way, we protect ourselves against the virus. How then do viruses survive and flourish? And the answer is by mutating. The viruses mutate and the body is not ready. So the new mutation of the virus expresses itself and displays itself as a friend of the body. And then it attacks and the body has to develop new antibodies and then there's another mutation. That's how viruses have been working for millennia. Anti-Semitism mutates. It's a virus. The virus attacks. Cultures build up mechanisms. But anti-Semitism defeats the immune system of the cultures who want to protect themselves against this hatred by mutations. I'm going to mention a few so you'll understand what I'm saying. There have been three such mutations in the last 2,000 years. Right now we are experiencing the fourth mutation of anti-Semitism in the last two millennia. You see, the first mutation took place with the birth of Christianity approximately in the year zero, 2,018 years ago. And that was the first mutation of anti-Semitism. Before that, Jews were hated. They were hated by the Egyptians, by the Philistines, by many of the pagan regimes and monarchies and empires in the land of Canaan, of course by the Assyrians, by the Babylonians, by the Greeks, before that by the Persians, we have the story of Purim. What was the hate based on? Territory, or the hate was based on religion, their religion, monotheism, Jewish practices, or whatever the situation was. With Christianity, something unique happened. What happened? Now suddenly, the founders of a new faith, which was based on Judaism, just like the founders of the next faith, Islam, which would be based on Judaism, believed that the Jews would join the new faith, absolutely, because it came from Judaism, its founder was a Jew. When the Jews did not, they were held guilty for not recognizing and of being complicit in the death of their Messiah and even the Christian so-called Lord. This was... The first mutation, how can you forgive a people who has destroyed the truth of the new religion of the divine? A thousand years later, anti-Semitism experienced a second mutation. It begins approximately 1096, when the crusaders on their way to conquer Jerusalem stop to massacre Jewish communities in Worms, in Spire, and in Mainz, on German, in Germany on the Rhine River, the first major European pogrom. In a le- this is 1096, the first crusade, Kreitzug in Yiddish, Masa Hatzlav in Hebrew. In 1144, in Norwich and England, you'll have the first blood libel, a myth that still exists today in parts of the Middle East that Jews use 
Christian or Muslim blood for their matzah on Passover. Suddenly it wasn't only Jews killed the Christian Messiah, or Jews rejected the new prophet of God, Muhammad. Now, Jews were not only a people who rejected the true religion, but Jews were seen as an incarnation of the devil. They were the ones who were poisoning wells. They were responsible for the black plague that killed so much of Europe. They are the ones who are killing children. They're desecrating their host countries. They're spreading plagues and ghosts and skeletons and diseases everywhere. This is a whole new mutation. How could you forgive such a people? These are people who bring into their midst bloodshed, violence, death and destruction to all the Gentiles around them. All they want to squeeze our blood figuratively and physically, practically. This creates forced conversions, inquisitions, burnings at the stake, public disputations, book burnings, expulsions. Europe has become a persecuting society. There's a third mutation of anti-Semitism. We can trace this mutation to the year 1879. There's a German journalist by the name of Wilhelm Marr. M-A-R-R, Wilhelm Marr. He coins a new word, you've heard this word. Anti-Semitism. We are against the Semites, those who come from Sem, from shame. 1879, Tafresh, Lamed, Tess. Why was this so important? Why did he coin a new phrase, anti-Semitism? You know why? This tells us that it was a mutation. Because 1879 was the age of enlightenment. Religion has been dead. Nietzsche said, the great German philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche said, God is dead. Religion was dying. This was the age of enlightenment. The secular nation state became powerful. This was the age of liberalism, of emancipation. How could you kill Jews? Because of a Yashkala, because of a Muhammad, because of some religion. This is the age when Europe is emancipating himself from religion, from the clergy, from the Pope, from the church. This is the age of secular enlightenment. What do you have against the Jews now? The anti-Semitism from the past can't work anymore. It's all about against religion, but now religion is not significant anymore. So Wilhelm Marr coins a new phrase, anti-Semitism. Religious prejudice was seemed, was deemed to be something of the past. The new hate, hate, the new hatred had to justify itself on different grounds. What were those grounds? Anti-Semitism. Namely, Race. Not religion, but race. This was a fateful development. You know why? You can change your religion. What do you do with your race? You can change your religion. A Jew can convert. A Jew can become a Murano. A Jew can say he's a Muslim or he's a Christian and he believes in you know who. But how do you change your race? There's nothing you can do. Christians can work for the conversion of the Jews. Racists can only work for the extermination of the Jews. Conversion of the Jews means nothing. If the Jewish race is impure, if the Jewish race is evil, if the Jewish race brings destruction to humanity, conversion doesn't help. A Jew is a Jew is a Jew. There's only one solution. This is the third mutation of the virus of anti-Semitism, always mutating, attacking the world, attacking the Jewish people in a new way. The Holocaust was born. Sixty years after the word, 
anti-Semitism came the deed. The Holocaust wasn't based on religion. The most assimilated Jews were murdered with the same glee as the most religious, ultra-Orthodox, Hasidic, Rosh Hashivas, Rebbes, Tzadikim. The new anti-Semitism doesn't focus on the Jew as a religious person, but as somebody who has Jewish blood flowing in his or her veins. We are now today, the last few decades, observing the fourth mutation. And it's important to be able to identify it. Because after the Holocaust, you can't get away anymore with saying the Jewish race is evil. That's racism, bigotry. After the Holocaust, the United Nations and so many world institutions and universities and newspapers and governments came together to say, never again. We will not allow racism and bigotry to take root in the world and kill people just because they're of a different ethnic group. Ethnic cleansing and racism is unpopular. So how can the new anti-Semitism be successful? Like a virus, it went through a fourth mutation. What's the fourth mutation? The fourth mutation is the new anti-Semitism doesn't attack Judaism as a religion. doesn't work. It also doesn't attack Jews as a race. It's ineffective. doesn't work. It attacks Jews as a nation. We're not entitled to nationhood. It consists of three propositions. Number one, there are 192 nations in the UN. The United Nations has 192 members. From the 192 nations, there's only one nation that's not entitled to their own homeland. They're called Jews. One nation from 192 nations. Amos Oz is a famous Israeli writer. He once wrote an article, he said, in the 1930s, anti-Semitism, anti-Semites declared Jews to Palestine in Poland. Today they say Jews out of Palestine. They don't want us to be there. They don't want us to be here. They don't want us to be The second is that the Jews all over the world, and of course Israel, are responsible for all the evils of the world. From 9-11 to global warming, to the oil spill in the gulfs of Mexico, to the genocides in Rwanda, Sudan, Darfur, and of course Syria, Iran, and Pakistan, and the Congos. Basically, we're responsible for AIDS, Blood libels. The Protocols of the Elders of Zion, one of the most vicious works, is still a bestseller today in many parts of the world. And there's a third proposition, and that is all Jews and all Jewish institutions are an extension of Israel. That is the fourth mutation of anti-Semitism. How does the virus penetrate so successfully? How does it penetrate the most sophisticated immune system ever constructed? The answer is the virus is brilliant. I'll tell you what it does. It knows that people like to protect the innocent. It sees what is the most sacred value of the age, and it shows you that Jews are responsible for the destruction of that value. 
So 2,000 years ago and 1,000 years ago, religion was on top of the game. So they showed that Jews are responsible for the destruction of religion. 1890s, 1879, and the subsequent decades, religion was not important, but science became extremely important. Nationalism became extremely important. In the name of science, social Darwinism and the pseudoscience of race, they show that Jews are insignificant. Jews are fighting the nations, they're fighting the czar, they're fighting other empires. In the name of science and nationalism, the Jews were persecuted. After the Holocaust, what's today the going word? What's today the sacred word in liberal societies? Human rights. So how does the virus of anti-Semitism penetrate the system? It says the same thing again and again. The Jewish people, especially Israel, are responsible for the greatest abuses of human rights, oppression, ethnic cleansings, genocide, poisoning of Arab children of any other people in history. In Durban, South Africa in 2000, there was a conference on racism, and one country was declared as a country that is still racist. It wasn't Iran. It wasn't Pakistan. It was not Syria. It was not Egypt. It was not Iraq. It was not Sudan. It was, of course, one nation. You can't get up and say, Judaism is evil, a Jew is evil. It's a different mutation. But, as we say in Yiddish, the Zelbe Yente, Anders Geschleiert. The same Yente, the same hatred, dressed up, the same virus, mutations, and penetrating the system, by using as its aid that which is the most beautiful in the eyes of humanity, and then showing that the Jews are responsible for the destruction of that all. But, that's the mechanism. Now I ask you, why? What does this virus look for? Why? We now go to the roots. The roots of anti-Semitism. There was a very famous Jew. In fact, when Time magazine was looking to name the man of the century, of the 20th century, who was the most important, influential person in the 20th century, it wasn't Winston Churchill. It wasn't President Roosevelt, FDR. It wasn't Joseph Stalin. It wasn't even Adolf Hitler. It was Professor Albert Einstein. Albert Einstein was born in 1879 in Germany. Albert Einstein died in 1955, in Princeton, here in Princeton in New Jersey. Einstein metamorphosized physics and science. And in 1938, November 1938, November 26, 1938, Einstein wrote an article titled, Why Do They Hate Jews? Published in an American magazine called Collars Magazine. It's already, it's been gone for a few decades. Stalin, uh, Churchill, sorry, Einstein shared the following fable. He tells the story about a shepherd who once spoke to his horse. And he said, you are the noblest beast that treads the earth. You deserve to live in untroubled bliss. 
Your happiness would be complete if not for the treacherous stag, which is a deer. And what Einstein was saying basically is, there was a shepherd who saw a horse, and the horse was thirsty for water. And the shepherd tells the horse, your life would have been unbelievable. You would have had calmness and success and prosperity and food and water as much as you wished. There's a problem, there's a deer. And this deer is treacherous and evil and malicious and self-centered and narcissistic and jealous. And this deer runs ahead of you and he takes all of your water. And the horse is so despondent and the shepherd says, but I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to protect you from that deer. You stay with me. My wisdom and my guidance will deliver you from this horrible stag, from this horrible deer who tries to undermine your life. Blinded by envy and hatred of the deer, the horse agrees. He yields to the shepherd's authority. He loses his freedom and the horse becomes the shepherd's slave. This is the fable, this is the of Professor Einstein. For him, this was the essence of anti-Semitism. The horse represents any Gentile nation. The shepherd represents the leaders of these cultures or of these nations. They want to do two things. They want to have absolute authority over their people. They also want to be able to get away with corruption. How do they do both? Very simple. They tell the poor horses, they tell the poor people, your life would be unbelievable. But there's a deer who takes everything that you have for himself. That deer is, of course, the Jewish people. What do they accomplish? First of all, the people need the leaders to protect them against the Jews. Number two, the leaders can't be corrupt because everything that's going wrong is deflected on the Jews. There's poverty, the Jews. There's sickness, the Jews. There's oppression, there's Jews. There's no success, there's no money, there's disease, there's, there's thievery, there's, it's all the Jewish people. That's how they do it. Which is why you will always see that anti-Semitism exists in the most corrupt societies. Whenever you see a society with this tremendous anti-Semitism, you will see tremendous corruption. How do they cover up all the corruption? How do they avoid opposition? Everything is the fault of the Jews. The horse now hates the Jews. The shepherd now could control the horse as much as he wants. The shepherd now is free to do whatever he wants or she wants because there is always that enemy. This is how Einstein understood the secret of anti-Semitism. This is what tyrants and despots did throughout the ages. Now, it's an insightful story, no question, but... Albert Einstein, who was an insightful Jew, a brilliant Jew, for one year he was even a religious Jew after his bar mitzvah, he decided to uh, live as a religious Jew for a year, he put on tefillin and he ate kosher, many people don't know that, I think when he was 14. It still doesn't explain why it's always the deer. (laughs) Why is the shepherd always busy with the deer? Okay, the deer is vulnerable. The deer is vulnerable, but there were always other, there were other vulnerable people. Why is it always the deer? Also, even when the deer is unsuccessful, they still blame the Jews. Even when the stag did not get to the water first, they still blame the Jews. Anti-Semitism flourished even in places where there were no Jews. This is where Einstein's explanation is insightful. But it doesn't still get to the root of anti-Semitism. It's this question and many others 
that the Gemara is coming to answer in Mesechta Megillah Dafyad Gimel Amid Beis. You still remember the ditch and the mound. Rebaba is not just telling a nice, cute story about a guy with a ditch and a mound. He's giving us a sweeping perspective on how to understand history, the history of humanity and Jewish history. There is an Achashverish and there is a Haman. One owns a mound and one owns a ditch. What does this mean? What it means is the anti-Semite known as Achashverish sees the Jew as a stranger in world history, as a foreign creep, literally as a mound that obstructs your free movement in the world. I want to walk through my field. I bump into you. On the way back, I bump into you again. I look at you and I just feel, you don't belong here. You disturb my view. You disturb the symmetry. You obstruct the equilibrium. You create disarray and chaos. I'm not even sure I know why. I just know that you somehow don't belong in this world. You, you're, you don't fit in. You're not fully integrated. You always stand out. Literally like that mound in a beautiful field, just state, as your teacher said, Vashtestavia Goylam. Right? It stands there like a mound and refuses to move. The Jew can attempt to do everything to assuage this anti-Semite. He may sell himself, his people, his values, his soul. He may do cosmetic facial surgery on the mound so that it looks good. But to no avail, nothing helps. As long as the Jew is alive, in the eyes of the Jew hater, he is irritable. He gets irritated by him. He is a cumbersome mound. But why? But why is the Jew a mound in the eyes of the Jew hater? Why is the Jew so cumbersome? Why does the Jew make him uncomfortable? Why isn't he comfortable in a world filled with Jews? Why does he need the world to be Yudenrein? Ah, because Jewish existence opened up a ditch, a vacuum, a void, a hole in the heart of humanity. The Jewish people created a chritz, a ditch. In the heart of the human race, in the heart of every human being, in one way or another, there is a void created by the Jew that the non-Jew is aware of, sometimes unconsciously, and in the case of Haman, very consciously. As a result of that, the non-Jew looks at the Jew either with tremendous admiration or with tremendous contempt or with a mixture of the two. What does this mean? The Gemara says it elsewhere in one line. In your second source, Mesechah Shabbos, Peites Amad Aleph. Shabbos 89a. Amalei one of the rabbis tells Reb Kahana, do you know why Mount Sinai was named so? The most important mountain on which the Torah was given is called Sinai. Why? Says the Gemara, Reb Chizda, Both Reb Chizda and Rabbi, the son of Reb Huna, said, My Har Sinai, Sheyorda, Sina, Laakum Alav. Sinai comes from the word Sina. 
Sina means animosity. On that mountain, hatred descended. Rashi says, Shalai Kiblu by Tyre. They did not receive the Tyre. What does this mean? Har Sinai is the mountain of Sina. Why is that the name of the mountain? A byproduct of that mountain is animosity set in. What type of animosity is this? Ah, Rabbi says, it's the Balachritz. There's a ditch. You see, if you want to understand the secret, the truth of anti-Semitism, it has nothing to do with the Jews just as a people in and of themselves. It has all to do with the fact that the Jew embodies something called Judaism. Or what we call Torah. It's the fact that the Jew, every Jew, embodies in his or her very existence and life, in one form or another, Torah, that created Har Sinai, Sina, animosity. Or in the metaphor in the Gemara here, it opens up a ditch, a void in the heart of the human race. You see, some 3,400 years ago, at the foot of a lone mountain called Sinai, the Jewish people received a gift that transformed their life for eternity. And by transforming their life, the world, again, could never look the same. What was this gift? It's the gift we call Yiddishkeit Torah. Once that gift came into the world, once the Jews began living and embodying and breathing that gift, history was changed forever. To convey this clearly, I'm going to quote a few statements that were said not by Jews, but actually by non-Jews. Because sometimes, in a very interesting way, who in the entire Chumash speaks in the most beautiful way about Jews? <laughs> Not Jews. <laughs> Bilam. If you want to understand the Jew, you got to go to Bilam. Because Jews are very busy with self-hate and complexities. We don't know who we are. We're too busy in therapy trying to figure ourselves out. But Bilam had a perspective. One of the greatest writers of all time was the Russian writer Leo Tolstoy. Tolstoy writes, I quote verbatim in translation from Russian. What is a Jew? Let us see what kind of peculiar creature the Jew is. All the rulers and all the nations have separately abused and molested, oppressed and persecuted, trampled and butchered, burnt and hanged. And in spite of all of this, he's alive. What is a Jew who has never allowed himself to be led astray by all of the earthly possessions, which his oppressors and persecutors constantly offered in order that he should change his faith and forsake his own Jewish religion? 
The Jew is that sacred being who has brought down from heaven the everlasting fire and has illuminated with it the entire world. He is the religious source, spring and fountain of which all the rest of the peoples have drawn their beliefs and their religions. The Jew is the pioneer of liberty, even in those olden days when the people were divided into two distinct classes, slaves and masters, even so long ago, had a law of Moses prohibited the practice of keeping a person in bondage for more than six years. The Jew is the pioneer of civilization. Ignorance was condemned in olden Palestine even more than it is today in civilized Europe. Education, knowledge, wisdom, information was mandatory. The Jew is the emblem of civil and religious toleration. Love your stranger and the sojourner, Moses commands, because you have been strangers in the land of Egypt. You know what it is to be a stranger, to be vulnerable, to be a foreigner. And this was said in those remote and sad Savage times when the principal ambition of the races and nations consisted in crushing and enslaving one another. The Jew is the emblem of eternity. He whom neither slaughter or torture for thousands of years can destroy. He who neither fire nor sword nor inquisition was able to wipe off the face of the earth. He who was the first to produce the oracles of God. He who has been for so long the guardian of prophecy, who transmitted it to the rest of the world. Such a nation cannot be destroyed. The Jew is as everlasting as eternity itself. Leo Tolstoy. Leo Tolstoy. Contemporary historian, non-Jew, Christian, Paul Johnson in the history of the Jews. All the great conceptual discoveries of the intellect seem obvious and inescapable once they have been revealed. But it requires a special genius to formulate them for the first time. The Jew has this gift. To them we owe the idea of equality before the law, both divine and human. Of the sanctity of life and the dignity of the human person. Of the individual conscience and so of personal redemption. Of collective conscience and of social responsibility. Of peace as an abstract ideal and love as the foundation of justice. And many other items which constitute the basic moral furniture of the human mind without the Jews the world might have been a much emptier place. American president, the president of the United States of America, John Adams, 19th century American president. I will insist that the Hebrews have done more to civilize man than any other nation. If I were an atheist who believed or pretended to believe that all is ordered by chance, I should believe that chance has ordered the Jews to preserve and propagate to all mankind the doctrine of a supreme, intelligent, wise, almighty, sovereign of the universe, which I believe to be the great essential principle of all morality and consequently of all civilization. If you don't have a supreme supreme, intelligent, wise, almighty, sovereign, you don't have civilization. A non-Jewish philosopher, Peter Kreft is his name, was his name, he writes, the prophetic spirit of the Jew finds meaning and purpose in everything, in history, thereby transforming mankind's understanding of history, their genius for finding meaning everywhere. For example, in science, in the world of nature, everywhere they find meaning. It could be explained in only two ways. Either they were smarter than everyone else, or it was God's doing, not theirs. The notion of the chosen people is really the humblest possible interpretation of their history. If they were a little more arrogant, they should have said, we're just smarter than everybody else. Instead they said, it was God, it wasn't us. 
He just chose us. It's not even us. We're just conduit. This is the humblest possible interpretation of their incredible, incredible story. There was an Irish Catholic, his name is Thomas Cohill, and uh, he wrote a bestseller a few years ago, The Gifts of the Jews. He says this, no Jew could say this, but Thomas Cohill says this, The Jew gave us the outside and the inside, our outlook and our inner life. We can hardly get up in the morning or cross the street without being Jewish. We dream Jewish dreams and hope Jewish hopes. Most of our best words, in fact, new, adventure, surprise, unique, individual, person, vocation, time, history, future, freedom, progress, spirit, faith, hope, justice, are the gifts of the Jews. The West's most deeply held beliefs about life, human nature, God, and justice are owed to the ancient Israelites. The Hebrews developed a whole new way of experiencing reality. It may be said with some justice that theirs is the only new idea that human beings have ever had. If I would say this, you would call me insane. Meshugah This is a quote from an Irish Gentile, theirs is the only new idea that human beings have ever had. This has been a bestseller, The Gifts of the Jews, and he can't be a racist because he's not Jewish. He's not one of the Hebrews. He's, he's an Irish man. What, what are they conveying? They're conveying what our mothers and grandmothers and great-grandmothers bequeathed to us, to us for thousands of years in chicken soup in Knedlach, in Chalupzas, in Gefilte Fish, in Berekes. The problem is in our generation, if all you have is Gefilte Fish, you'll never know this. That's why today we have to articulate it in words. People ask me why I do these classes. Thousands of years of Jewish history, suddenly you're the Grois and Chacham. The answer is today what's often left is only Chalupzas and Babka. Our grandmothers put it in there. But if you're not sensitive, you don't pick it up. And therefore we have to articulate what they're saying in Jewish language. Some of them communicated it through lullabies. Essentially, it's captured in the opening words we say in the morning before davening. Ashreinu matoiv chalkeinu, umanoyim goyraleinu, mayafu yerushaseinu. Namely, at Sinai, the Jewish people became a new people. A people that were given a torch to illuminate the world with a new perspective, with a paradigm shift. With love, goodness, kindness, holiness. To give history the dignity of having a purpose. To pave a road in the jungle of history. Suddenly, kindness, compassion, responsibility, the conscience became the supreme values of life. Every life had absolute meaning. Every moment had absolute meaning. At Sinai they learned that every human life is indispensable. And every moment is part of a mission. Every person is an ambassador of God, an ambassador of love, light and hope. As the Pasuk says, Atem tiyuli mamleches koyanim. 
v'goy kadosh, a kingdom of princes and a sacred nation. Each moment had meaning and each struggle had opportunity. To see a world, as a poet once said, to see a world in a grain of sand, heaven in a wild flower, hold infinity in the palm of your hand, and eternity in an hour. At Sinai we were presented with the strongest argument for peace between people. Remember, peace is not a natural thing. War is natural to the human race. The argument for peace was an argument given by Sinai, that we were all created by the same God, and therefore we're all one. We all have a divine image. We all come from the same womb. We come from the same source. We all reflect God. Without that belief... Is there anything that really unites us? Is there anything that makes me responsible for you? At Sinai we were given a blueprint, a Torah, a manual to heal the world, to reveal the organic oneness in the entire cosmos and in every human being. To bring the world step by step to a state of redemption through Hagbaras Hatsura Alachaymer, meaning to be able to peer through, to be able to penetrate the veneer of coarse materialism that eclipses the inner soul and the inner core of the world. The entire Torah, all the mitzvahs teach us how to access the underlying core of human identity, the soul of existence, the soul of the world, the inner godliness of the universe. We were given the opportunity to experience intimacy with the Creator, the source of all life. We were taught when you learn Torah, you kiss God. And an action of a mitzvah embraces its Creator. In other words, at Sinai, the Jewish people were given a gift that conferred upon their life a whole different level of dignity. Everything would be seen different. Life, love, family, intimacy, relationship, relationships, day-to-day experiences and interactions. Everything had the echo of eternity, enlightening it, informing it, inspiring it. But here's the catch. No man I know loves his alarm clock. We don't like alarm clocks. We sometimes need them, but we wish we wouldn't. We have been chosen to be and serve as the alarm clocks of civilization. To sound the shafer of history. The Jew is a walking alarm clock. All experiences have side effects. When the Jewish people came into the world and Sinai happened... Suddenly, they challenged the whole world with a call, with a message from the infinite living moral God. And you know what this did? This created a chritz. It created a hole, it created a ditch, a mental and emotional void in the heart of humanity. Because we know in life, when you sometimes see a certain life, and you see what life could be, You have a void, something is missing in you. You crave to have this experience and you don't have it and you feel an emptiness. And there's very few pains in the world like the pain of emptiness. The pain of experiencing a hole, a ditch in the depth of your neshama, in the depth of your psyche, in the depth of your heart. When you know there's something there, you crave it and you don't have it or you can't have it or you wish you can have it. It creates a very powerful ditch. How do you respond to this ditch? 
the non-Jewish world responded to this ditch in two different ways. Many non-Jews from various cultures and religions responded by filling the ditch through elevating their lifestyle to a higher plateau. They saw the Jew and Jewishness as a model that they can emulate in their way. What we call Sheva Mitzvahs, B'nai Noach, the seven Noachide laws, L'Sheva Sitzara. They created a life and a value system based on the Welt Anschauung, the perspective of Torah. The American nation, the United States of America is a great example of that. This is a Malchus Shal Chesed. It's an empire that was created by the founding fathers to a significant degree based on the value system of what they know, what they call Judaic values. Based on the idea of, as the Constitution and the Bill of Rights emphasizes the inalienable rights of every human being. In terms of freedom, in terms of liberty, liberty, in terms of justice, in terms of equality, in terms of the pursuit of happiness. But this path requires discipline. It requires limits to power. It requires moral maturity. It requires sacrifice. Many non-Jewish cultures and civilizations opted for an easier method in order to fill the psychological ditch. And you know what that is? Rid the world of the Jewish people. And the ditch, the hole, will be gone forever. Those of you who have ever been minors know that there's a concept called miners' canaries. You know what miners' canaries are? Miners, before they go down to mine... They send down canary birds. Why? Because canary birds are very sensitive to noxious fumes. If the canary birds come back sick or they die, the miners run as fast as possible, knowing that this is a place of poisonous gases. If the canaries come back healthy, the miners know you can go in. If you want to understand Jews... We are the miners, canaries of history. Wherever a person or a society does not want to feel the ditch created by a moral conscience, the first person who gets attacked is the Jew. Evil is always attracted first to the Jew to destroy the Jew in order to be able to flourish. That's why wherever you see Jews being persecuted, it begins with the Jews. It never ends with the Jews. We are just the canaries who always attract poison, venom, evil, and immorality first. Yeshaya Hanavi, our prophet Isaiah, articulated it best. If you look in your sources, the third source, chapter 43, Yeshaya, you are my witnesses, God says. I am God. A few verses later, This nation I created for me, they express my praise. The anti-Semite says, knows that the Jew is a witness. The Jew is a witness of what? 
The Jew is a witness of the fact that there's something deeper, truer in the world. The Jew is a witness. The Jew is a witness of the fact that there's a living, present God. The Jew is a witness to the truth of eternity, to the truth of morality, to the truth of unity. What do you do when you have a witness who's going to testify against you? You kill him. You kill the witness. But the uniqueness here is who's the witness? Every Jew. No difference who the Jew is. Every Jew is a witness because. The power of Torah has become so embodied in the Jewish people. Even the Jew walks around the world saying he's an atheist. He's as secular as they come. He's an agnostic. The anti-Semite looks at him. The non-Jew sees him as a witness. He's a witness of God. And not just because even if he's not observant. The power of Torah transformed the Jews. And therefore, he is or she is the alarm clock of the world. What's more than this is, the very existence of the Jew is a witness. Because the fact that such a small people survived all of the persecutions, according to rational, historical studies, Jews should have not been here. And yet, we survived and we thrived. Every Jew walking today down Park Avenue, or 5th Avenue, or Madison Avenue, or Solo, or Greenwich Village, and even Muncie, Lakewood, Yerushalayim, B'nai Brak, Borough Park, Williamsburg, London, or Toronto, or Chicago, from Sydney to Brazil, is a breathing, walking miracles. All the miracles in Chumash pale in comparison to the miracle of Jewish survival. The fact that Jews walk is the greatest living proof that history is a moral narrative. There's something called history and something called meta-history. The Jew by his very existence reminds 7 billion people that the world is not a jungle. The Jew by his or her very existence reminds the world that we will all have to answer for ourselves and our actions after our proverbial sojourn here on earth. And for somebody who doesn't like to have a conscience, that's very painful. It's one of the most painful realities in the world. If you're ready to have a conscience, you look up to the Jew and you emulate the Jew. If not, Haman says, I have to fill this ditch. But here's the good news. I took a group of students, 60 secular university American students from campuses across America some time ago to a trip, for a trip to Poland. It was a long trip and a very intense trip. And we went not only to the death camps, we went to the cities where Jews lived and flourished. I took them to Latsunt where the Chayza of Lublin was, to the shul there. We went to uh, <coughs> Lezhensk or Lublin, or Krakow, or Warsaw, and I took them to various shuls, and we put on tefillin together, and in one of the shuls, I got up at the bim, and I said, we're now going to go back 200 years. And I tried to explain to them the vibe, I told, I taught them things, titles that were said by the teachers, by the rebbes, by the rosh Hashivas, by the tzaddikim, in those shuls, in those places, I wanted they should only, they should understand not only that Jews died in Poland, 
but that Jews lived in Poland. The story of the Jews doesn't begin with Hitler. The story of the Jews begins with Maimed Harsina. At some point, one of the students asked me a very interesting question. And he said, I have a question. Are you going to tell me that me, a boy from the West Coast from California, who grew up not only in a secular environment, but completely foreign from Judaism, are you going to tell me that I have any connection to the Jews who left Egypt, stood at Sinai, and made a covenant with God? I am from the same people who produced, in his words, an Abraham, a Moses, a David, a Solomon, an Isaiah, Jeremiah, Amos, and Ezekiel. Am I from the same people? I don't, I don't, we don't belong to the same people. Those were like different people. But it's not just kids from California. Some people in Muncie ask the same question. I may have a yarmulke, I may have pace, I may have a beard, I may go to the mikveh, put on the light candles, daven, shachas, min and even go to a shir in the morning and at night. But am I really from the same people that produced an Ezra, a Nehemiah, a Shimonat Sadiq, a Hillel, a Zokne, a Gamliel, a Rabbi a Rabbi Akiva, a Rabbi, a Rav, a Shmuel, a Rav Haigon, a Gershom, a Rashi, a Rambam, a Ramban, a Rajba. Am I from the same people? Am I made from the same stuff who produced an Arizal, a Rabbi Yosef Karo, and a Balshemtiv? Can it be that the same Jews who entered into a covenant with God to be a Mamleches Koyen and Vigay Kaddish? Me, this kid says, a kid from Harvard or Ohio State University, or from any yeshiva, or, or seminary or school. Is it the same? Is it the same Jew? And I told this student, I said, I want to show you something. I want you to look at one aspect. And that is, look at the hate. The anti-Semites of the world today still loathe and despise the Jewish people today with the same intensity that they despised our ancestors for the last four millennia. When Ahmadinejad and Rawana, Rawani, when Arafat and Nasrallah vow that they're going to destroy Rahman al-Islam, every Jew living in the Holy Land, it's with the same glee and passion that Jew haters have done for millennia. In other words, Jews today, the simple, sometimes spiritually numb, cold, lifeless, clueless, ignorant Jews that many of us feel we are, careless and apathetic, still arouse the same madness, the same hatred, the same passion. Ask those who hate you and they will tell you. How do we do that? The answer is because we still carry the exact same holiness that the Jews standing at Har Sinai carried with no difference. We are still the same living, breathing, miracle witnesses of God. The truth is, Haman put it very acutely when he told Achashverish, 
יש נוי עם אחד, מפוזר ומפוירד, בין העמים בכל מדינוס מלכוסך, ודוסיהם שוינס מכולם, ודוסי המלך אין המויסם ולמלך אין שוי ולניך. There's one nation scattered among all the nations. Their religion is different than every other nation. What he meant was they're scattered among all of the provinces of your empire. They're all over the place. But they're also one nation. Amechat. They're one people. But there's a deeper interpretation. And that is, sometimes you're scattered in space, and sometimes you're scattered in time. Time and space always work together. You can ask Einstein. They always work together. You're scattered in space geographically, you're scattered in time. There's Jews who lived 3,000 years ago, 2,000 years ago, 1,000 years ago, 500 years ago, 100 years ago, and today. Scattered over three millennia. But it's Amechot. It's one nation. And Haman wasn't wrong about this. That's why when Esther pleaded with Achashvedish to relax the decree, she didn't say Haman lied. She never accused Haman of lying. This was true. It remains true. Am echad mefuzad 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 Interesting, you have it in Halacha. I'm not going to get into it at length, but there's a Gemara Meseches Hoirius, Davhei and Davav, a very interesting Halacha. When the Jewish people, at the end of Bayis Rishon, at the end of the first Beis Hamikdash, they worshipped idolatry in the days of Tzitkiyahu. So they had to bring a carbon chatos, a sin offering. But the Beis Hamikdash was destroyed, and they were exiled. So the Pasuk says in Ezra in chapter 8 that the Jews who rebuilt the second Beis Hamikdash, they brought the carbon chatos, the sin offering, for the Jews at the end of the first Beis Hamikdash. Asks the Gemara, Tzchatos Shemesu Ba'aleha. If somebody brings a sin offering, let's say they violated Shabbos by mistake, and then the person passes away, you can't do anything with the offering because who's going to bring it? It's not for their child or for anybody else to bring. It was their own sin. They passed away. There's nothing to do with the offering. There's nothing to do with it. So if so, how is it that the second temple Jews brought a chatas for those Jews who were all dead? So the Gemara answers, An individual can die. The collective body of the Jewish people never dies. So even though no Jew who worshipped idolatry was alive, but since it was the Tzibur, Kalal Yisrael never dies. An individual Jew passes away. Kalal Yisrael is always the same exact Kalal Yisrael that lived and stood by the feet of Mahar Sinai 3,300 years ago is the exact same Kalal Yisrael here tonight, Thursday night and all over the world. Yeshnai Amechad. Mefuzerim fighted over 3,000 years. But it's the same body of Kalal Yisrael without any difference or distinction. Despite intellectual differences and emotional differences and... <coughs> And social differences and technological differences and, and all of the other good and not such good differences. But Sibur, Loy Mace. Where do you see it? You see it in the anti-Semitism. If you and I can attract the same passion, it means, wow, Gewalt, you're as holy as they were. You may have challenges, we have our struggles, we have our issues. We have our dilemmas, we have our crises, we have stuff that we have to work with. But don't doubt that you're the same witness. And you could see one more thing. And that is, there's no such a thing as an atheist Christian. 
You ever heard of an, a guy says, I'm a Christian atheist. It's tied to the Sasra. If you're an atheist, you're not a Christian, you're a Christian. No such thing, a Muslim atheist. I'm a Buddhist who believes that Buddha is fiction. I'm a Hindu who believes that karma is never. You don't have it. If you're a Muslim, you're religious. If you're an atheist, you're not a Muslim, you're not a Christian. There's one exception. <laughs> you could do it, you can do an experiment. You don't have to do it, but in theory, people are walking out of a church on Sunday, say, You believe in the Lord? He says, Of course. Why was I screaming Hallelujah for four hours if I don't believe in the Lord? You go Friday to a mosque, you believe in Muhammad? Of course, why have I been fasting for a month Ramadan and kneeling now for six hours if I don't believe in Muhammad? And yes, the Buddha is coming out of the, of the ashram, you believe in Buddhism? Of course, why have I been fasting for 49 years and doing transcendental meditation? And you ask a Hindu, you believe in karma? Of course, why have I been hanging out with this worm for 60 years? If I don't believe in karma and eating these leaves? And then you go Yom Kippur, 5th Avenue, by Temple Emmanuel, a Jew comes out from the Reformed Temple Emmanuel, takes out the Yamulka, uh, goes into a taxi, wait, 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 you believe in God? Me? I'm a sugar? So why did you go to, why were you in synagogue? He says, it's Yom Kippur? <laughs> so you believe in God? No, what God? When God? Evolution, Big Bang, what God? But it, so why were you in the synagogue? He says, because I'm Jewish, Yom Kippur, a Jew goes to synagogue. And the funny thing is, he thinks it's rational, it's normal. Why? Because being Jewish is deeper than being religious. Religious beliefs and attitudes are subject to change. Today I'm religious, tomorrow I'm not. Some of you, yourself, you know it, or your friends, or siblings, or children. It changes. You could never cease to be a Jew. A person could say, I don't believe in Judaism. I know many Jews like that. I don't believe in God, Khalila, whatever he could say. But gee, being Jewish is like a parent-child relationship. You can't divorce your parents. The most sophisticated, assimilated, secular German Jew, who was more German than the Germans, who had Gotha and Schiller flowing from his lips like milk and honey, the Jew was married to a blue-eyed, blonde, Aryan woman. Assimilated, maybe, maybe converted for generations. He knew every symphony of Mozart and of Wagner. He was a student of Nietzsche and of Schopenhauer. These were Jews who were more German than many of the Germans in their generation. And he was sent to Treblinka and Dachau and to the gas chambers with the same glee as the Ois Judah, as the Hasidic Yiddish good Hasidic Jew from Kroke, from Lublin, from Varsha, from Sosnovitz, and from Eishishik. The Jew from Piasetsna. Or any other city in Poland, or in Galicia, in Romania, in Hungary, Czechoslovakia, all of Eastern Europe, Russia, Lita, Lithuania, all of Eastern Europe, immersed day and night in learning. The most simple, cute, angelic Jewish baby, who wasn't a capitalist, a baby doesn't have any beliefs, a baby's a little baby, a baby's a little infant, triggered the same hatred and, and envy and animosity like any other Jew in the world. Why? Because the Haman of our times saw in the visage of every single Jewish child and every single Jew 
the visage of God. When he clubbed a little girl to death, he felt he was clubbing God, Kevayachal, to death. Take a look in the Sifri, on this Pasek, Sifri, Dvarim, Shin, Memvav. Hashem says, Atem, Eidai, Vani, Keil. Im, Atem, Eidai, Are, Ani, Keil. Vim, Ein, Atem, Eidai, Kevayachal, Ein, Ani, Keil. The Sifri says, Hashem says, You're my witnesses that I'm God. If you're my witnesses, I'm God. And if you're not, Kevayachal, I'm not. What does this sell us? This explains to us what the anti-Semites felt. If I kill the witness, there's no God anymore. The Jew, by definition of being a Jew, who carries Judaism in his or her blood, even if he doesn't practice it, by his or her very existence as a Jew and part of being the Jewish family, is a witness to God. And this creates a powerful ditch. And this is the ditch that Haman felt. Achashvedish wasn't so sophisticated. Achashvedish was the simple anti-Semite who knows Jews make him uncomfortable. Haman is the Balachritz. He needs to fill the ditch. How can he fill it? If there's no Jew in the world to remind him of a higher life, to remind him that there's a conscience, to remind him that there's morality, to remind him that there's justice, to remind him that Hashem Alekeinu, Hashem Echad, there's something called truth, there's something called unity, there's something called Pnimius, there's something called inner work, there's something called transcendence. If I can get rid of those people who represent who are the alarm clock of humanity, I can go to sleep at night in a much better world. In a world where their barbarian can reign supreme without limits. I just have to add this. In our own lives, this is also true. Sometimes among Jews, one Jew will see in another Jew or in another Jewish community something and it creates a ditch. It creates a void. How do we respond? Some of us say, wow, let's learn from him. And some of us say, let's kill Let's destroy unconsciously. But if I can get rid of, if I could prove that this guy or this community or this person is a lowlife, is a heretic, is nothing, is, is evil, then I could go on to practice the superficial Judaism of tyranny, dictatorship, deception, coercion, and injustice. You can't practice injustice in the name of God if there's somebody standing there who when you look at him or her, it creates a void. You have to do something with that void. Some of us learn from it and grow, and some of us it's too painful. And we turn the deer into the devil so that we should be able to feel good about ourselves. I'm not going to elaborate on this, but if you think about this, This is a profound guidance, not only to understand non-Jews and Jews, but also to understand sometimes what happens among us. When you see a ditch, when you see a ditch in yourself, before you attack, ask yourself, what have you just observed that is bothering you so deeply? Aggression is sometimes a result of the greatest fear. We hear something, it's going to shake me up because I know it's true deep down. But if this is true, I have to say goodbye to all my Avaidazaras. Who wants to say goodbye to the Avaidazaras? If I know this is true, Rahman al is going to shake up everything. 
How am I going to look my mother in her face, my father in his face, my brothers, my sisters? If I know this is true, I have to say goodbye. I have to smash my father's idols. Who's ready for lech lecha I don't want that. So what do I do? I destroy the witness. And we Jews, unlike the anti-Semites, we know how to destroy people through words. And through emails. And through comments. And through whatsapps. And through pashkrilin. And through books, and through articles, and through kolkaitas, and through signs, and through plakaten, and through Shabbos conversations, and butters, and shalom zachas, and simchas. We're better than they. We don't have to get bloody and gory. I mean, some of us do that too. I mean, we're still better than them. Let's not compare. But we, we don't, we're sophisticated. We do it through words. But we do. What do we do? We gotta neutralize the whole. We gotta fill the whole. If I could dismiss this person or this group or this person, either crazy or heretical or some other evil I attribute to them, then I could believe that my ideology could continue to reign supreme. And I'm not necessarily doing this consciously. I may be doing this subconsciously. But this is a challenge that every person has to ask themselves because this is a painful question. What do you do with the void. Sometimes it's in your own marriage, by the way. Sometimes, right, what do they say? They say, never let, never go to sleep arguing. You shouldn't go to sleep arguing. So some say, of course don't go to sleep arguing. Stay up and fight. <laughs> right, that's what somebody once told me. The best solution. Don't never go to sleep arguing. Stay up till four in the morning and fight. But sometimes our spouse tells us something, and it hurts. And the reason it hurts is because it's true. It creates a ditch, it creates a void. And instead of saying, wow, that hurts, I have a void. What I do is, if I can destroy you, if I can mock you, if I can put you down, if I can get you to be quiet, I won't have to deal with the ditch anymore. But the one who suffers from it most is the person who has the ditch. The anti-Semite ultimately destroys himself as much as he destroys the Jew because ultimately he allows his own his entire life to be reduced to valuelessness, to something that will never survive. Where the Jew is rooted in something that will always survive, which is what he hates so much. He doesn't want to know about that, which will always survive. He doesn't want to, he doesn't want to believe it. Which is the reason that Mordechai understands that bowing down to Haman won't do the trick if Haman hates you and Haman wants to kill you because you don't bow down to him just bow down to him we have to be stubborn go to the king say I'll bow down go to Haman I'll bow down to you it has nothing to do the Baal HaKritz assimilation never solved the problem of anti-Semitism. The Jew can scream from today till tomorrow, I'm not a Jew, I'm assimilated. What it did was, it, 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 what it does is it exasperates anti-Semitism because the non-Jew feels that he's a Jew. If he's at least open, I know that he's honest. If not, I feel that he's conspiring to undermine me through a secret conspiracy. And that's why usually, not only did it not help, usually it exasperates it much more, even if that is not, even if that is not the reason for it. (sighs) 
I'm going to conclude with two stories. Why did I think of these stories? They came into my mind. So I want to share you with that, with them, with you, because I think they're connected to this uh, to this theme in a powerful way. In 1990, communism collapsed. Hungary was one of the countries that was finally able to breathe. Jewish activists could start becoming active in Eastern Europe, in places where it was forbidden by law to practice Judaism in open, like the Soviet Union for 70 years was... a place with tremendous antagonism to the Jewish people, to Judaism, and everything had to be done underground. Ultimately, Hungary in the 50s, the revolution brought Hungary under communism, and 1990, under Gorbachev's reign, as you remember, the Berlin Wall fell, and communism fell shortly after. There were Askonim, activists who came to Hungary and decided to open a Jewish school for the first time in decades. They advertised in a local newspaper about a new school, and they expected, if they were lucky, that 50 Jewish children would show up on the first day, which would have been a tremendous accomplishment. In reality, 400 Jewish children showed up in Budapest in 1990 to this school. They were overwhelmed by the response, what do you do with 400 children? So they divided the children and their parents into groups, And they started to interview each parent about his or her background and the reason for bringing the child into school so they could understand who their clientele was and create a curriculum and a system to be able to facilitate the needs of most of these children. One of the fathers brought his son and they asked him, why did you bring your son today to the school? And the father shared the following story. When the Germans occupied Hungary in 1944, he said, I was a young child. I grew up in an extremely assimilated Jewish family. Our friends, our neighbors were not Jewish. We lived in Hungary, but in a very assimilated area, and in a very non-Jewish area, and we did not have any Judaism in our home. We did not observe Shabbos. We did not even observe any of the Jewish holidays. As far as our neighbors were concerned, we weren't even Jewish. One night, I'm lying in bed. I hear an argument between my parents downstairs. I come downstairs quietly. They're sitting in the living room. The door is locked. And they're engaged in a bitter dispute. My mother is urging my father to run away. My mother says, the Germans have marched into Hungary. The Germans will send all of the Hungarian Jews to the death camps. We have to run. My father says, nobody knows we're Jewish. Our neighbors don't know we're Jewish. Our friends don't know we're Jewish. Nobody's going to tell the Gestapo that we're Jewish. And there's nothing to be concerned about. There's nothing in our house that looks Jewish. Even if they searched the house, they wouldn't find anything Jewish. This father is telling to the people in Hungary, 
1990, he says, I'm standing at the door. I'm listening to every word and I'm terrified. I'm peeking through the door uh, people. Suddenly my mother takes the ladder. She climbs up to the top of the bookcase. And I see that she picks up a Jewish prayer book. What we call a siddur. Later I find out it was the prayer book that her mother gave her as a gift on the day of her wedding. My mother turns to my father and says, what about this? She kisses the old dusty sitter that's been laying there for years, and she says, what about this? This will give us away. My father stretches out his hand, and he takes the book from my mother, and he casts it into the flames burning in our fireplace. They're big flames, and within moments, the Siddur is consumed by the flames. The last Jewish remnant in our home was gone. My mother burst into tears. She sits on the ground in the living room, and she sobs and sobs and sobs. She can't stop. To her, this represented the end of the Jewish chain. The final solution for our family. The golden chain has come to a tragic closure. I went back to bed. I couldn't fall asleep. I also cried. I didn't understand what she was so sad about. He threw a book into the flames. But I felt in my bones that something terrible happened. Something of a devastating effects has befallen our family that night. The Germans did not deport us. Close to one million Hungarian Jews were exterminated in a few months in the spring of 1944. We were speared. But each and every night when I go to bed, I remember that night and I cry with my mother's tears. For decades we have been under communist tyranny. They never allowed us to do anything to heal from the pain of that night. And then this week I saw an ad in the newspaper. And I saw that you're opening a Jewish day school. I decided to come with my son. Because today I want to hold my child's hand. I want to bring him into the classroom. And I want to take a siddur. And I want to give it to him. And I know that when that happens, my mother's tears will finally dry up. And my pain will be mended. I will be able to say to my late mother, who is in heaven, I will say to her, you see, the chain has not ended. Your grandmother, Siddur, has not ultimately been burnt. Perhaps the paper and the letters were consumed. Perhaps the paper was consumed. Gvilin Nisrafen. But but the letters, the spirit, the souls of the Siddur sword, and now has taken root in the heart, in the mind, and in the mouth of your grandson. That's why I'm here. <clears throat> in 2007, an anti-Semitic preacher came to the University of Kansas. It's called KU. 
It's a large university with a lot, a lot of Jewish kids. He came with groupies. He held up ugly signs. Some of you may remember messages of bigotry and intolerance. I saw one of the signs, all Jews belong in hell. This is America, University of Kansas, 2007, 21st century. He was ranting and cursing and hollering. The students in university, which are often students that are not educated and steeped in Judaism, but they care, a lot of them care. They were shaken. And they came out in the dozens and they were screaming at him. He was screaming and his groupies were screaming and the Jews were screaming. There was like a demonstration and a counter demonstration. And then something very interesting happened. And for me it was a very moving scene. There was a kid in University of Kansas by the name of Charles Goldberg. Charles Goldberg was a typical Jewish American secular kid. Involved in every not good thing under the face of the sun. Not in every not good thing, but in a lot of not good things that university students and sometimes even yeshiva students are involved in. He was a real, a heverman, mischievous, a troublemaker, and his parents didn't have extra nachas and quelling from him. He was a lebedic heverman, and, but he had very little concern or care for Judaism or the Jewish people. But then he saw this man with a sign, all Jews belong in hell. And It aroused him, it triggered him, it was ma'ayrid him, it inspired him very deeply. And suddenly there was a part of him that he never thought much of, that came to life. Sometimes certain parts of you, you didn't think they exist, but they're there. What you would call the spark, the neshama, the nekudah sayadus, the yechidish benefesh, the pintaliyid. He ran to the fraternity where he lived. Why did he run there? There's a Chabad rabbi on campus, KU. His name is Rabbi Zalman Tachtel. He's one of the unsung heroes of our generation. Selflessly devoted with his wife to the Jewish students, who has single-handedly made dozens and dozens and dozens of Bali Tshuva. Zalman Tachtel walks the fraternity constantly to speak to students, Jewish students. And he came there one Shabbos morning after davening by him. He has a minion. He came to visit to get some people for the Suda Shabbos. And he was schmoozing with the Chevra. And he forgot his talus. They put on his talus. Coming home from Shabbos. He forgot his talus there. And you know how it is in a dormitory of boys. It's things stay forever. It's not like, you know, the other gender. So things stay. So if a talus is there, it stays there, you know. I'd be his girl tzaddik. And Charles remembered that whenever he walked out, there was a talus. There was a prayer shawl there. So he runs back to the fraternity. And he starts searching for the talus. And he finds it. He hops the talus of uh, Reb Zalman. He runs back to the demonstration. He brings a bench, he stands up on a bench, he wraps himself up in the talus, and he starts davening. He starts saying every prayer of Judaism that he knows, with the talus, wrapped up in the talus. All the Jewish kids see this. They start, they all start cheering him, they start applauding him. The media arrives, and the next day the front page of the University Daily Kansan, as it's called, 
features a huge, huge, mamish, a huge picture of Charles Goldberg wrapped in a talus, swaying back and forth praying. And the headline of the article is, The Jewish Response to Bigotry. A few months ago, I was at a uh, Shabbaton for campus students. And there was a group from Kansas University. And who did I meet? I meet somebody, comes over to me, says, Shalom Aleichem. I see somebody with a beard, with a, with a yarmulke, with payas, with a beard, and with tzitzis. I say, what's your name? Tells me, Charles Goldberg. <laughs> I wanted to thank you for all you share him on the yeshiva.net. I listen every day. I learn with you. I learn Gemara. I learn Lekodetair. I learn Shurim on the Parsha, on the Yamam Toivim, <coughs> on Sugis and Allah, whatever he learns. I learn with you every day. He got married. And uh, he married also a woman who's a, bala, a young girl who's a Balas Truva. They live today in Pennsylvania. And he came to the Shabbaton to speak, to share his story. And then I knew this was the Charles Goldberg, the Charles Goldberg with the talus, the one who taught us how to respond to bigotry. So now at last you understand, when Reb Abba says, What is he looking for a marshal? Ah, he's looking for a big marshal. To understand what's this in Achashvedish's and Haman's life. What's Vilanze? So he explains to you. There's a Baal HaTel. There's a Baal HaChritz. And this also explains not only them. It explains Mordechai and Esther. Explains why Haman didn't only care for Mordechai. He wanted to kill every Jew. You hate Mordechai? Kill him! Why are you killing all Jews? They're bowing down to you. It explains why Mordechai understood why not bowing down won't solve the problem. It explains, perhaps most importantly, their strategy. Mordechai tells Esther to go speak to the king. Esther agrees ultimately to go speak to the king. But Esther says, fast three days, and then I'm going to go to the king. And a whole renaissance of of the Jewish people, the renaissance of tshuva is created. Because Esther and Mordechai ultimately understood that even though they have to go to Achashverosh, and even though Dina de Malchusa, Vispaulu Bishloy Mashalir, and Ain Saimchen Alanais, you gotta do what you have to do in order to deal with Achashverosh and Achashverosh in every generation. But they understood that the worst thing that Jews do as a result of anti-Semitism is they internalize it. This was the great mistake of Jews in the 19th and 18th century. They were logical. What they say to themselves? They hate us because we're different. Let's stop being different and they'll stop hating us. This changed the Jewish people in the modern age. Let's stop being different. And they won't hate us anymore. They blame themselves. This created the concept called self-hating Jews. They internalize it. They say, it's my fault. Dr. Tversky says he was on an airplane once. You know, the Tversky is dressed like a chassidah shayid. And there was a woman there near him. And she said to him in Yiddish, if you would only dress like everybody else, they would stop hating us. What do you have to be different? He had a long kapata, a long frock, a round black hat, a square white beard. Just look like everybody else and they'll accept you. Why do you have to stand out? 
Dr. Tversky looked at her and said, which language are you speaking? And she said, Yiddish. He said, I'm sorry I failed to comprehend the verbiage of your dialect. I am Amish. She says, oh, you're Amish? I thought you were Hasidic. He says, no, I'm Amish. She says, wow, I admire and love the Amish. He says, why? She says, because you're a minority, but you maintain your heritage with so much pride. Kudos! Dr. Tversky responds in Yiddish, and he says, ah, oibich volt given Amish, if I would have been Amish, you'd love me. Now that I'm Jewish, you're embarrassed by me. I want to bless you to respect in your own people what you respect in other people. The Jews blamed themselves for anti-Semitism. They didn't understand. They didn't create the anti-Semitism. The anti-Semite creates the anti-Semitism because of his moral failure. And it's not you didn't do it, and therefore you're not going to cure it. On the contrary, they couldn't care less. You could change your face a thousand million times. It doesn't change it. On the contrary, it only exasperates it. The Jew never could become self-hating. He always has to be able to say, Not out of arrogance, out of humility. The Jew has to be able to be ready never to be ashamed, embarrassed, humiliated internally. It created Jews who were self-hating, who are ambivalent, who are confused, who didn't know who they are and who they're not. Jews has to be able, a Jew has to be able to have the, a true inner identity, a stoltzkeit, an inner pride, an inner goy Yaakov, to know that even if the body is in exile, the neshama is nishigayin in Engolos. The soul of the Jew is never in exile, is never in Golos. And if he has to fight, he has to be able to defend and fight, like the Psak and Shulchan Aruch, Pikuach Nefesh, Nachrim Shabbat, Aliskin Afonshus, and Erechayim Shen Chavtas. But the most important thing is that Mordechai and Esther understand this, that as long as the Jew remains connected to the source of all life, to the source of all eternity, like the Pasuk says in Malachi, the last Navi of the Jewish people, Ani Hashem loy shanisi, ve'atem b'nei Yaakov loy chilisem. I am eternal, and therefore you will never die. So Mordechai and Esther understand that ultimately, as long as there will be ve'atem advekim b'ashem alekechem, they will remain connected to Hashem through Torah, through mitzvah. So chayim kulchem ayoyim, and indeed la Yehudim hoysa oira v'simcha v'sos and v'kar. Have a wonderful week. This class is brought to you by the yeshiva.net. Please help us continue the classes. Make even a small contribution at www.theyeshiva.net slash donate.